Our gracious God and Father, we do come before you this morning, Lord, and we humbly confess, Father, that we need the ministry of your Spirit. Father, we pray that you would be pleased for the sake of Jesus Christ, our high priest, to grant your Spirit's ministry in in all hearts and minds. We pray, Father, that we would hear and believe what we hear and obey what we hear. We pray that our lives would be reformed by what we hear. We pray that our, our children would especially, Lord, benefit in these early days as pilgrims and disciples of Christ. And Father, we are even mindful of of the one who we will baptize, Lord willing, next Sunday, Suzanne Anastasia Fox. We pray, Father, that all your dear ones would hear, that your little lambs would recognize the voice of the Master, and that they would gladly come out from the world and follow him. Father, may your word be implanted by the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter 7. Please hear the word of God. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, He sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver, from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants 
so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them, and now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel, who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, 
who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. And when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. This is God's word. As Christians, we must be firm enough in the truth to get ourselves killed. But we must also be saturated enough in the gospel of God's redeeming love to not be mad when we are killed. This is one thing we clearly learn from Stephen's example. Stephen is firm. He is immovable in the truth of Christ. Stephen does not switch to a different message so that these unbelieving men in Jerusalem will find him more acceptable. He does not switch to a message that will spare his life. Stephen stands firm on the one message, the one message which to be believed will require salvation of anyone who comes to believe it. Stephen preaches in a way that leaves men completely dependent on the power of God if they will benefit from his preaching. Do you want that kind of preaching? Or do you want a preaching that you will benefit from simply by the power of the flesh? Stephen will not compromise. He is firm in the truth of Christ. To believe his message will require a gracious visitation by God's Spirit upon those who hear it. Until then, it remains the one message. Until that gracious visitation, it will remain the one message the enemies of God hate the most. That Jesus Christ is alive 
at the right hand of God in heaven, and all people will stand before him in the final judgment. The Jews of Jerusalem hated this message because it meant that they participated in killing the king of glory, God's son. But this message humbled them in another way. It declared that Jesus, not the nation of Israel, Jesus, not the temple in Jerusalem, Jesus, not the priesthood, Jesus, not the sacrificial system, Jesus, he alone is Israel's glory. Can you understand how much glory these Jews would have to set aside to believe that Jesus is the glory of Israel? So they took up stones to kill him, to silence him, to finish their hatred against Christ. But Stephen was not mad about it. He was not filled with the rage that filled these servants of Satan. Rage is Satan's affection, not the affection of Christ. Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. He saw their murderous rage as putting them in more danger than himself. If he died, he would be with Christ, but they, they would now be murderers. They would be worse than they were before. So Stephen prays for them. He was not mad. He was filled with God's love. Beloved, understand, the glory of the risen Christ, who had been crucified, was so strong in Stephen. Stephen was so comforted by the glory of the risen Christ that a violent death seemed no danger to him at all. The danger that gripped his heart was the danger his killers faced before God. So he prayed for them. This is the Christian that Christ is making of you. This is what we learn from Stephen's example. Be firm in the truth so firm that you're willing to be killed for it. But be saturated in the gospel, so saturated that you're not mad when you're killed. Now, there are more lessons than Stephen's example. And I want to draw out four brief lessons from this reading today that we find in the content of his message. Lesson one, Jesus Christ is the key to all human history. Lesson two, the history of Christ is not a history of earthly glory. Number three, the history of Christ is a history of rejection. And number four, the history of Christ is a history of suffering in the confidence of glory. Number one, Jesus is the key to history. Now, in his preaching... Stephen has taken us on a journey through history. The journey started with Abraham in verse 2, and you see that it ends in verse 52 with Christ, the righteous one. In between is Isaac and the covenant of circumcision. Then Jacob and the 12 sons. 
Then Joseph, one of those 12, one of those sons, and Israel getting stuck down in Egypt. This is all chronological, follows the order. Then the rise of Moses and the exodus out of Egypt. Then the tabernacle in the wilderness. Then King David and his son Solomon. And then the permanent temple, the permanent tabernacle, if you will, the temple in Jerusalem. And then the righteous one, Christ. Stephen's purpose in this history is to show us that everything about Israel's history was pointing to and moving toward Jesus Christ. This is why he says in verse 52 that the prophets were announcing beforehand the coming of the righteous one who is Christ. Every prophet, including Abraham and Joseph and Moses and David and all the rest of them, They were all raised up by God to be a revelation of the coming righteous one, Christ. He is the key to human history, but not just the history of Israel. He is the key to the history of all nations, which is why Stephen has started with Abraham. Before Israel was a people on earth, Before Israel was a nation themselves, Abraham was an idolater. Abraham was a pagan. Abraham was a Gentile living among the nations. Joshua says this straight up in Joshua 24.2. So when the Lord God, in his sovereign grace, came to Abraham and called Abraham out of idolatry, he called him to Christ. He brought Abraham to faith in Christ. This is why Jesus says in John 8, 56, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. The calling of Abraham was not just Abraham's salvation. It was also a revelation that all the nations are desperately in need of a gracious visitation by Christ. And by calling Abraham, God reveals that contrary to their deserving, the idolatrous nations will be graciously visited by Christ. It was already put right there in the calling of Abraham. No wonder he is said to be the father of many nations. Genesis 18.18 says, In Abraham all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. In what way? Not how Abraham made a bed. Not by how he conducted farming. All the nations would be be blessed by one of his offspring, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is the key to not only Israel's history, but the history of all nations. Now, beloved, what this means, this first lesson, is that we must read the Old Testament the way Stephen read the Old Testament. We must read it as Christ being the key. We must not, therefore, read the Old Testament as a guide on corporate leadership, looking for those verses that can go on a poster in the kitchen room. No, it is about Christ. If you told the truth about the Old Testament in the corporate kitchen room, you might get called before HR. Why are you preaching Christ next to the coffee? 
Beloved, our Savior himself said that all of Scripture is about himself. He said, if you believed Moses, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. That's John chapter 5, 46. After his resurrection, our Lord, teaching the disciples on the road to Emmaus, said that, well, it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The only scriptures that they knew of then were the Old Testament scriptures. All of it was about him. That's our first lesson today. Here's our second. The history of Christ is not a history of earthly glory. Now, this was the contested point between Stephen and the council in Jerusalem. We should remember, Stephen is being accused by this Jewish council, the same one who crucified Christ a few months earlier. Stephen is being accused of speaking against the glory of the temple and speaking against the glory of the law, the law of Moses. It is this very accusation which brings forth the question of verse 1. Are these things so, they ask him. Instead of just saying yes, instead of just saying no, Stephen gives the history lesson. He shows them that Israel's glory was never, ever, never, ever, one more time, never, ever the things of the temple, never, ever the things of the priesthood, never the glory of the law, never the sacrifices. It was never Israel's glory. And to show them this, Stephen reminds them, that the gracious visitations of God came to them long before and far away from the temple. Verse 2, the God of glory graciously visited Abraham when he was an idolater in Mesopotamia, not while he was praying in some temple in Jerusalem. There was no such temple when God called Abraham. Verse 9, the God of glory graciously was with Joseph while he was in a jail cell in Egypt, not while Joseph was praying in some temple in Jerusalem. It didn't exist. Verse 21, the glory of God graciously visited Moses while he was living like a prince of Egypt, not while he was praying in some temple. Moses was born under the sign of the cross, wasn't he? He was to be exposed and put to death like all the other children. The Lord graciously looked upon him and saw beauty in the reflection of his own grace. And then verse 52, of course, the God of glory graciously visited them himself. The righteous one has come. So the temple, the brick and mortar temple of Israel was never Israel's glory. God himself is Israel's glory. God himself graciously saving a cursed and a sinful people is Israel's glory. So the history of Christ is not a history where Christ comes to glorify the works of man. That's how unbelieving Jews thought of the Messiah, that he would come and he would look around and see who was doing things right and well and keeping up the temple service, and he would 
glorify their works by blessing them and saying, you come with me into my kingdom. Stephen is saying no. The Lord Jesus Christ does not come to glorify the works of man, not to glorify the works of the church. The history of Christ is the history of God's glory and his saving grace, which means the foundation of true religion is not the outward and external glory which the law creates and which the law summons forth by the works of man. No. As the scripture itself says, quote, the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Romans 4.13. Another scripture says, For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Galatians 3.18. The foundation of all true religion, then, is the gracious promise of God. The promise to reconcile sinners to his glory through his Son. In Israel's history, we see God doing this very thing. He keeps graciously coming to his people at the very times in their history when they are not covered with any earthly glory. When their great father is an idolater in Mesopotamia. When their great brother Joseph is in a prison cell in Egypt. When their great prophet Moses is in a bulrush basket on the Nile. When they are inglorious. God comes. Why? Because it exalts his grace. Because it truly reveals the God he is. And this is why Paul twice in Ephesians 1 says, Praise be to the glorious grace of God that has saved us. So the history of Christ is not a history of Christ as judge. Please hear this. The history of Christ is not a history of Christ as judge where he keeps looking for the good people on earth, judges them to be the good people, and then blesses them for being the good people, and then ushers them into the good kingdom. That is not the history of God in Jesus Christ. The history of Christ is the history of Christ as Savior. He, of course, is a judge. He, of course, comes in judgment. He, of course, will sit in judgment. Stephen says as much in his final words when he sees Christ seated at the right hand of God. The Jewish council would have immediately recognized that Stephen was repeating what Christ himself said during his trial. You will not see me again until you see me coming from the right hand of God in glory, in judgment. But that is not the foundation of true religion. He is a judge, but the foundation of judgment does not raise sinners to God. The foundation of judgment does not bring us salvation. It's the foundation of mercy that brings us salvation. The judgments of Christ will bring no sinner near to God but his grace and mercy will. And this is what he has promised to his elect church. 
The history of Christ is the history of saving grace, and it is the glory of his people. We must get this right, beloved. You and I are walking into a future in the West where it would be very tempting to pick up the pleasant lies of the devil and think that now is the time for the church to speak judgment to the world, and only that. Stephen is testifying to an unbelieving, hard-hearted, violent mob that the history of Christ is a history of mercy. Lesson three, the history of the church is a long history of rejecting Christ. In verse nine, we read about Joseph. Joseph is a type of Christ. It says there that the patriarchs, his jealous brothers, they sell him into slavery to the Egyptians. That's what they had done with Christ. Verse 27, it's Moses. Moses comes to aid his brothers, the children of Israel, but they refuse to understand that God was giving them a savior, that Moses was coming in the office of Christ to deliver them as a redeemer. They say to him, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Their rejection of Moses continued in the wilderness, verse 39 through 43, and it became gross idolatry in the wilderness. But none of this rejection stops Moses from leading them. None of it stops him from bringing them out of Egypt. None of it stops him from performing the wonders and the signs. He comes in the office of Christ to deliver, even though he is rejected by his own. And he foretells in verse 37 that God is going to raise up another prophet like him from among them, their brothers. He speaks of Christ. And Christ, this greater prophet, this true prophet, will undergo all the same rejection and more that Moses already experienced. Israel had seen so much, didn't they? And they still rejected God's saving presence because his saving presence also meant his rule and reign over them. And they knew it. And they so hated being ruled and subdued by God that they couldn't even see the mercy or the need for it. Wherever Christ comes to deliver from Satan's power, from sin's dominion, he comes also to lead into righteousness. But they did not want Christ ruling over them. Why? Because they refused to believe that they were in bondage. They refused to believe they were slaves to sin. They refused to believe they were slaves to Satan. They refused to believe that they were held captive by their own flesh. And so they didn't see mercy and they didn't see the godly kingly rule of Christ. Christ has been rejected long before Christ was rejected. Because Christ came long before he came. 
Christ kept coming to his people graciously through his servants, Joseph and Moses and David. And he was being rejected. And then when he came in the flesh, he was rejected. And so our Lord Jesus himself says, the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. He takes it personally, all this rejection of his church, when they reject his ministers and they reject his grace and reject his rule. So the history of the church is a long history of rejecting Christ. We are so proud sometimes and think that it's only those outside the church who reject Christ. Passages like this should straighten us out of that crooked way. It is the church who has rejected Christ. When we have seen the signs and wonders, we have heard, we have tasted the heavenly gift. Beloved, this should not be. Lesson four, the last. The history of Christ is a long history of suffering in confidence of glory. All those ministers of Christ who came in his name that Stephen goes through paragraph by paragraph, they were rejected because they came to announce salvation and with it, kingly rule. They were rejected. They suffered. Many of them suffered terribly. It was our Lord Jesus himself who said, you kill the prophets. That's the history of Israel. You kill the prophets. Imagine that on the church sign. Come, join us. We kill the prophets of God. That was the real message. But in the midst of that suffering, the servants of God, and of course the true servant son, Jesus Christ, they suffered in confidence of glory. And we see that most wonderfully in this passage in Stephen's martyrdom. Stephen, it's rightly said, is the first martyr of the Christian church at Jerusalem. That word martyr comes from a Greek word, martus. But when you look for that in your Bible, that Greek word is translated over and over again as witness. How did it become a word that means those who have died for the testimony of Christ. It came to mean that because so many who bore witness to him in the early centuries of the church lost their life in bearing witness for him. They, they were so firm and immovable in the truth of Christ, they would let themselves be killed for it without being mad about it. Look at Stephen how greatly comforted he is in his sufferings by the sight of Christ's glory. Back to verse 55. But he, full of the Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. The shining glory of the risen Christ 
is shining on Stephen's face, radiating him, and giving him the strength of death itself. Giving him the strength of divine love itself. And beloved, you yourself do not have to wait until you are dragged out of a church and stoned in a parking lot before this strength of glory allows you to go through every kind of suffering with faithful obedience to your Lord. You don't have to wait until that day because we live in the fullness of time. The Spirit of God has poured into our hearts and shown into our hearts this glory of the risen Christ. You do not need to see the special vision that was given to Stephen because you have received the special grace of the Holy Spirit's testimony that Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God the Father. Listen to Paul make this very point. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, Genesis 1. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It is the light of Christ crucified for your sins and raised for your justification. It is that very light of glory that Christ is at the right hand, ruling over every circumstance in your life. Whether you are dragged out of a church before you leave this earth or not, Christ rules over it all, and he will bring you to his glory. And it is that very glory that is shining in your heart by the Holy Spirit which means that we will not despise suffering for the name of Christ. We will not despise being ridiculed for being a Christian. We will not despise being isolated and nudged out for being a Christian. We will not despise being mocked by our dearest relatives for being a Christian. And we will not despise much worse being arrested, being escorted to the border and kicked out of the country, being executed. We will not despise these sufferings because this is why we are alive in Christ. We have been reconciled to God not to live for ourselves in this world. We have been reconciled to God to live for the salvation that Christ brings to the nations, to the glory of the Savior who will have his inheritance. So what should the Christian be known for in the world? Well, what was Jesus Christ known for in the world? Paul answers both of these questions in one passage. He says, God, through Christ, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Stephen discharges that ministry to the end. Paul goes on, that is, in Christ... God was reconciling the world to himself, 
not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. What are Christians to be known for in the world? Not for how angry we are at certain groups of people. Not for how much we hate certain groups of people. Not for how much we want to avoid certain groups of people. (coughs) Those comforted by a vision of Christ's glory in heaven are known for how firm and immovable they are in refusing to pursue earthly glories, yes, but they are also known for how eager they are to see others enter into the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. You see, Stephen was so overwhelmed by the comfort of Christ's risen glory that he was completely released from seeing himself in danger by the violence that was about to befall him. And the only danger that filled his heart was the danger unbelieving sinful men were in. He was becoming just like his Savior, wasn't he? Just like his Savior who died on the cross and said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. You know, at the end of the age, the world is going to look upon this pile of bodies that they themselves have killed and piled high. And as they look on that pile of bodies of dead Christians, they are going to say this. Yes, we killed them, but boy, they sure did want us to be forgiven our sins, didn't they? Beloved, that, that may be the only true testimony to the glory of Christ that the world can give but it will be drawn from their lips. Boy, those Christians, they sure wanted us to be forgiven our sins, didn't they? They wanted it more than they wanted to keep their own life. So Stephen's death was necessary to finish his history of the world, wasn't it? Stephen's death was necessary because he had come to bear witness to the true treasure and the true glory of Israel, that it wasn't something on the earth. The true treasure and glory of man was not the temple, was not the law of Moses. It was not circumcision. The true treasure and the true glory of man was not longer life, was not better health care, The true treasure and the true glory of man is the forgiveness of sins in God's beloved son. And Stephen gave testimony to that treasure and glory by giving up his life with great love. Lord, forgive this sin. And he fell asleep. Let us pray. Oh, gracious God and Father, if the glory of your risen Son, if the glory of your crucified Son who has defeated the works of Satan and conquered sin's condemnation, if the glory of your risen Son who has taken our flesh and bone into your high heaven, 
if this glory is not shining in the hearts of any in this room, we pray that surely as you made it shine upon Stephen's face, that it would shine into their heart, that the fruit of your spirit would be granted and gifted to those who see not this glory. Father, if there are any who are here in the darkness, who, like Israel, have seen it all and heard it all, and who yet say in their heart, who made you judge and ruler over me? O Lord, testify to their spirit today that they are under a ruler. They are under the rule of the prince of the power of the air, under who all sons of disobedience languish in his servitude, the devil. And he has blinded their eyes and comforted them in it. Lord, I pray that it would please you to shine the light of the glory of your son in his death and resurrection, his humiliation and exaltation, his lordship over all things. Shine this light upon them. And Father, I pray that we would not, like the Jews of the generation in which Stephen lived, that we would not think our glories are in the earth, in a building, in a certain religious exercise, that we would, O Lord, come away from it all in the triumph of faith, and see that our glory is in the promise of saving grace, in the God of our salvation, in the beloved Son. And Father, we pray that this would straighten our way. It would deliver us from all manner of error and all manner of distraction, and that we, Lord, would, like Stephen, recognize that the only reason we still have life in this world is to spend it in the testimony and witness-bearing to the nations that there is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. May we, O Lord, give you all due praise and honor in the doing of it. In Jesus' name, amen.